I want to talk to you today about how God will bring justice into your life. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. We knocked on doors, we held Bible classes, we were waiting for the end of the world, and I loved it. You know, I believe atheists have a right to be atheists and agnostic. Everybody has a right to be whatever they want to do as long as they don't interfere with other people's rights or beliefs. There's a certain feeling of specialness that comes with, I get to be one of God's chosen ones. A lot of them are trapped in their positions. They're caught in the pulpit and they stay there. And now their lives become really tortured. We never really know if what we're thinking on the inside is accurate with what's out there on the outside. Religion becomes a way of numbing yourself to escape from your problem with reality. There's nothing to be gained by believing any mistruth, no matter how benign it might be. Hey, it's Joe Sorge, and welcome to another episode of Make Believe, the podcast where existing beliefs are challenged and new beliefs are sometimes born. Today we're going to hear from people who, for whatever reason, lost their faith in religion, but were so deeply entrenched in their religious communities that coming out of the atheist closet seemed nearly impossible. I'd like to make it clear that this episode is not about the pros and cons of religious belief. We're not taking a position. But since our series is about the essence of closely held beliefs, we found today's story fascinating. What if you were not only involved in a religious community, but you were the leader, the minister, or the priest? What would you do? We begin with the story of Dan Barker, who was once a Christian minister in the Pentecostal church. And now, well, let's let Dan tell us. I was an ordained Christian minister, and I preached for 19 years. A co-pastor in three California churches, a missionary to Mexico, a Christian songwriter, and a cross-country Christian evangelist. I was evangelical Christian, born-again Bible-believing. I was then an Assembly of God associate pastor, which is Pentecostal, speaking in tongues and faith healing and all of that. And then I went into a charismatic Christian church, which was more a middle-of-the-road evangelical Christian ministry. My mom and dad were uh, 1940s dance band musicians. When they got married and had babies, they became very conservative. They took us to church. My dad went to Bible school. He became a lay preacher. My mom was a Sunday school teacher. We knocked on doors. We held Bible classes. We were waiting for the end of the world, and I loved it. I thought I was so lucky to be born into the right religion, the right family, the right country, the right time of history, and Jesus was coming any minute, and I got to be on the front line with my family, a part of that end times ministry. So from as early as Dan could remember, his life was centered around religion. I loved my Christian upbringing, and I thought there was nothing else. Everybody affirmed it. The pastors, the church members, the relatives, no one questioned it. And when I was 15, I became a born-again Christian on my own because I used to believe and preach that God has no grandchildren. You have to be born yourself. And then a few months later, I accepted what I was convinced was a call to the ministry. And at the age of 15, I started carrying my Bible and I started preaching. And I was doing sermons at that young age. 
uh, to some effect. People were getting converted, and it was pretty exciting to think that I was called by God to change the world. The Bible definition of preaching is Isaiah 58.1. It says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. I went to Azusa Pacific University. I got a degree in religion. And so that allowed me to become ordained as a minister. And so I, I didn't consider myself a great scholar. I was a soul winner. I was out on the streets. I probably brought more people to Jesus than any of my professors because I was out preaching every night and doing these meetings and standing on park benches with my accordion and playing the piano in these revival meetings and traveling through Mexico prisons and trying to get people to come to Jesus. It was really exciting and it just felt so fulfilling I thought the world was going to end, and I thought the future's not going to be here, but I get to live my final days for Jesus. We asked Dan if he thought it was important to proselytize on behalf of the church. I was proudly proselytizing. I thought I was doing you non-believers a favor. I thought, you, who, who would not want to hear this good news? If you're going across the street and a bus is going to run you over, shouldn't I pull you out of harm's way? That's what I thought I was doing. There's a hell, there's a heaven, there's a judgment day, and I was called by God. I was that guy on campus, you know, I would come up to you with this confidence and this assurance. And you can be very effective by being confident. And I was confident. It was not an act for me. I truly believed it. But at some point, Dan began to feel some strange undercurrents. I was a strong believer all through my 20s. I started preaching as a teenager, and then after I was ordained, and then after I was an evangelist. And around the age of 30, I started having not doubts, but I started encountering a broader cross-section of Christians with variations of theology that raised some questions. In my experience, most of the ministers and evangelists and missionaries that I knew were sincere. They were sincere believers. They were not doing it for personal gain. Maybe I was wrong. Today, I'm a lot more cynical about the motives of a lot of ministers. I do remember being surprised at how some of the ministers in the ministerial association spoke with each other more in a competitive sense about how our church is better than your church and we're making more money than you are. I was shocked at that because I thought our motive should be heavenly. But I do think even they feel like they are called by God to be doing this good work to the world, even though many of them are not qualified Marriage counselors, for example, they think they're able to use the Bible to convince a woman to stay married to her abusive husband because the Bible says divorce is wrong. So I think they're deluded and many of them are ignorant. I know for a fact that most of them don't know very much about the very religion that they are preaching. They don't really even know their own Bible, but they think they uh, have this status as a clergy, which is a kind of higher level person. You're called by God to be this sort of intermediary or this pastor over others. And there's a certain feeling of not egotism, but specialness that comes with, I get to be one of God's chosen ones. 
Now, we've all seen preachers on TV who've claimed that they were, well, let's use Dan's words, special. Here's an example. I, I'm, I'm important. I'm somebody. I'm teaching eternal life here. I'm a real deal. You can't get this in any other church in town. Now, y'all don't want me. All you got to do is tell me we won't have a church and we'll sell what we need to sell. And we'll go on down the road and we'll find some little podunk church that don't know up from down. And I'll find me a dozen Joe's baskets who don't have a pot or a window and who will shout Jesus. And I'll give the rest of my life to them. Now, maybe Dan's contemporaries were not as blunt as our reverend here. But the undercurrents of cognitive dissonance began to weigh heavily on Dan. If you were raised like I was, you don't just wake up one day and go, oh, silly me, there's no God, how could I have been so stupid? What happened with me was, I remember I was at a church, and the pastor told me that he has some members of his congregation who didn't think Adam and Eve were historical, real people, that they were a metaphor. And I was shocked that there would be such heretical thoughts among Christians. And I came to the conclusion that those people are wrong. However, that shouldn't stop me from fellowshipping with them. So later, as I started moving, I realized that, okay, maybe the prodigal son is a parable, and maybe Adam and Eve are metaphors. What about God himself? What other character is just a big figure of speech? Is there any actual reality to it? That took four or five years to move across that spectrum. I thought I was becoming more mature and sophisticated and growing in my Christian faith when I was becoming more liberal in my theology. So it was not overnight. I've heard of pastors who was overnight, but for me it was a very painful, slow intellectual process. I was preaching, for example, that evolution is a sin that creationism is the truth. And so I decided I should probably learn something about evolution if I'm going to say it's bad. So I started reading some science, just some popular science, with the idea that I should know my enemy. And I, I actually got to know my enemy more than I thought I would. So I went through a kind of a self-education, and I kind of had to humble myself and go, oh, I was preaching against it, not really understanding it. And finally, I, I dumped out all the bathwater, and I said, hey, there's no baby there. It's just all, it's all just words, it's all just figures of speech. Toward the end of my migration, I was in this really strange hypocritical state where my intellectual brain was saying, none of this is true. And I was telling all of this to God. You know, hey God, you know, you're, you're, you don't exist, but boy, and I, I, because your brain has these years of habits. You don't just turn everything off, right? So I was actually praying to God praying in the Spirit and speaking in tongues and feeling all those things and also saying to God, you know, you actually don't exist. And I knew that it was a delusion. It was a weird state for the brain to be in. I got to the point, my intellectual side of the brain was looking at my other side of the brain, more like a science experiment, and say, look at that. Dan's praying and he doesn't believe, but he still has these feelings. I asked Dan whether he could recall the moment the belief switch flipped completely. I remember one day in, down in Mexico, I was preaching at a little adobe mission down there, sleeping that night in a burlap cot, looking out the window through the stars up there, looking at the stars that are ingesting this material, this energy, and burning for a while and then burning out. And I realized for the first time in my whole life, I was absolutely alone in that room. 
that I was like a little low wattage star ingesting material and, and kind of burning it faintly and someday I'm going to die, I realized I'm just a natural organism in a natural environment and that's all there is. And I finally shook hands with myself like, hi Dan, this is who you are. You're not some pretended spirit, soul, ghost, principalities and powers fighting over your eternal destiny. It's just you living a natural life in a natural world. And it was exciting and scary at the same time. I realized at that moment in 1983 that I was a baby atheist. It took a while. It took four or five months after that before I finally left because I still had a calendar of preaching. So for about four months, I was a horrible hypocrite. I went to church. I preached the sermons. I didn't believe it. But people were still getting blessed. One woman came up to me afterwards. She said, Reverend Barker, I want you to know I really felt the Spirit of God on your ministry tonight. And I'm thinking, you did? Because I didn't believe a word of it, and I hated myself. I, I was a hypocrite lacking integrity. I should have stopped it. I should have said, no more. This is not fair to me. It's not fair to you. I need to get out, right? But how do you stop a lifetime of ministry? How do you stop on a dime? And a lot of the members of the clergy project, which has more than 700 people just like me who were in the same situation, who have finally left, some of them say it's, it's like a divorce. You realize it's over. But when do you actually walk out the door? You're, there's still a period of time, you know, you got, you got to tie up some things. So it was December of 83 when I finally did my very last sermon. I was playing the piano, singing some songs that I had written with some really stupid lyrics that I had written. And I totally hated myself. It was kind of like, you know, Pagliacci, the opera where his heart is broken, but he has to go on stage and make people laugh. You know, it was that kind of a feeling like, this is agonizing, but the show must go on. And so I did it and I said, I'm never, I'm never gonna do this again. We spoke with Dr. Daniel Dennett of Tufts University about preachers who no longer believe. I think that there's a surprising amount of disingenuousness among religious leaders. Linda Lascola and I have just published a book called Caught in the Pulpit about closeted, non-believing clergy. And believe me, there's hundreds of them. We interviewed dozens. And they come to know what they're doing. And some of them deal with it gracefully, and some of them deal with it with a great deal of pain. But a lot of them are trapped in their positions. They're caught in the pulpit, and they stay there. And now their lives become really tortured. I think that if you're in a position of some authority, for instance, if you're a pastor of a church, and you tell your congregation that, you know, evolution is a, is a falsehood, and you're not up on the literature, I think that's negligence, and I think it's culpable negligence. I think if you're in a position of authority, you are responsible for misrepresentations, whether or not they're intentional. Mark White, the bass player for the Spin Doctors, grew up in a community that was highly religious. At one point, he was extremely committed to his church, but over time, he changed his position. We hear from him now. And I believe that the people at the very top are atheists. All these mega preachers that are on television today are mostly atheists. They just figured out a way to make a ton of money and, and fool people because all these people are being tricked. And... It's like in The Matrix where Morpheus is telling Neo that some of these people are so ingrained into the uh, system that they will fight to defend it, even though the people at the top know it's a complete scam. I mean, if Creflo Dollar 
or, or uh, Kenneth Copeland, if these people were to suddenly get up there and just confess that they were atheists, the whole thing was a scam, some people would still believe it, but a lot of people would start to think. But if it's a scam, could they possibly confess? Or are they so locked into the belief systems of their congregations that they feel that they have no option but to continue the con? We're going to play for you an appeal coming from the ministry run by Creflo Dollar, the preacher that Mark White mentioned. Listen as they attempt to raise money to purchase a Gulfstream 650, which is a private jet costing $65 million. If all of our existing partners were to sell $300 each from all over the world, we'd be able to acquire this jet in a very, very short period of time. But any contribution or gift amount is graciously appreciated as we continue to spread the gospel of grace. For more information on how you can participate in sending Creflo Dollar Ministries with the gospel of grace to the four corners of the earth, visit CreflodollarMinistries.org today and follow the link for Project G650 or to make a donation of any amount using your mobile device, text G650 to 41444. Now after he was publicly criticized for this appeal, he addressed his congregation as follows. I never one time, you can attest to it, I never one time came to you and asked you for a dime for this airplane, didn't I? <laughs> Creflo Dollar asking his members for six, five million dollars. I ain't never asked you for a dime. So what do you think? Is Reverend Dollar caught in the atheist closet? Would a God-loving, true believer deny having asked for a $65 million jet when the evidence to the contrary is out there for anyone to see? We all know that politicians are good at ignoring the facts, but could a minister who truly believed in God blatantly lie in front of hundreds of his followers in a house of worship? Although Dan Barker's congregation didn't buy him a private jet, we asked him if he felt any guilt about losing his faith and leaving his congregation to find another minister. I felt not so much guilt during that transition as embarrassment and disappointment. Because how can you chastise a young child for believing in Santa Claus when that's where they were at? So I guess I do have some regrets. I encouraged other young people to go into the ministry and they are still in the ministry today. And I feel bad about that, but what can you do? You live your life the best you can, the way you can, at the time you were living it. So yes, uh, I don't feel guilty, but I do have regrets. When I became an atheist in 1983, as far as I knew, I was the only one. I wasn't jumping on a bandwagon. At that time, I had never knowingly met another atheist. Of course, we meet other atheists, but you just don't know it, right? And as far as I was concerned, I was the only one. But I was reading books, and I read a book by a young woman named Annie Laurie Gaylor, who had written a book about women in the Bible. So I wrote her a letter. She was with the Freedom From Religion Foundation. She didn't answer. She lost the letter, but her mom found it, and her mother, who was president, responded to me and told me that a young woman in Chicago with a TV show was wanting to do a whole segment on atheists. Her name was Oprah Winfrey. So she flew me to Chicago, and for the very first time ever, I knowingly met some other atheist. It was on her show. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to AM Chicago. 
I'm Oprah Winfrey. If you have a drinking problem, most people call Alcoholics Anonymous. But where do you go if you're trying to kick a religion habit? Well, I'm not talking about just cults, but the teachings of everyday churches. Catholics, Baptists, Methodists. My two guests this morning are a mother and daughter team who just opened a telephone hotline for anyone who's trying to kick religion. Ann Gaylor and Annie Laurie Gaylor. Today in Chicago. You know, I'm sure that, the, of course, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who uh, would disagree with the idea of kicking religion out of your life. Why do you need a hotline for it? Because a lot of people are trying to kick religion, and because religion is, um, is kind of an addiction, it's kind of a sickness with some people, and they need some place to turn. I met Annie Laurie, and I met Anne. It was pretty exciting, because that's the first time I'd ever publicly spoken about my lack of belief, and Oprah was kind of playing hardball. The Bible is an unreliable document, and it is a very uninspiring document, and my heart cannot accept what my mind rejects after serious study. And so you have decided what? There is no God? Well, I am an atheist now, yes. You went from 17 years of being a minister to not believing in God. That's right. That what does was, that say about you? That means, I was, that means I was wrong. I made a mistake. I had a psychological delusion that my culture and my family were presenting to me as truth, which I wholeheartedly accepted. If someone's happy in their religion, then we pose no threat to anybody. But we're you are on television uh, saying, recruit. this is not the way, folks, let me tell you. Well, um, <laughs> you are on television saying that. Oprah asked us, why do you feel the need to go on TV and proselytize your atheism? And Annie Laurie said, We were invited. And this is that is true. That this is, is true. A plurality, and we do have separation of state and church in this country. It's very important that um, minority views, particularly those that aren't religious, should be heard in this country as well. They shouldn't be stifled. It was great TV because the audience was handpicked Bible thumpers, and they were they were calling Annie Laurie a witch, and it was it was pretty neat. And after a few minutes of that, I thought. This is cool. This, I, this is much better than preaching to the congregation. There's a hostile audience out there, and you're seeing something that's making a difference. I feel very sorry for you, because there is a bigger being. I mean, they are really upsetting me. I'm getting warm, but I am a Christian. Uh, seriously, uh, this young lady here, the devil has got hold of her and her mom. You think I'm a witch? No, I'd look. I, I'm not playing. I found a home with those people, and then three years later, Annie Lorraine and I got married. Well, Dan admitted that he was an atheist on TV, but it was time to come out of the closet for those people who had not watched the Oprah show. In January of 84, I sent out a one-page letter to everybody, co-missionaries, co-pastors, Christian publishers, relatives, friends, everybody, dozens of copies of this letter, I remember thinking, this is kind of important. I'm telling everybody I don't believe anymore. And the reactions I got to that letter were all across the board. If you can imagine it, I got it. I got reactions from Christian friends and relatives that were loving and understanding, and we're still friends today. I got the opposite reaction, sometimes surprising from people that I thought were friends who have written me off, who've called me the devil, who have attributed false motives to my change. Uh, you must be wrestling with sexual temptations. You must have arrogance in your life. You know, you hear all of that. I tell you, that's a good way to test your friendships, is renounce everything that they all thought was dear, and you can see which of your friends are truly friends, not contingent on belonging to some group out there, or some church, or some culture, or some religion. 
And some of them are still good friends. And the ones that I lost, I realized it wasn't a loss at all because they weren't true friends in the first place. True friendship would withstand that. So I found a whole new society of friends. There's a clarity of thought that comes when you're not hamstrung by the requirement that there be this transcendent external purpose to it all. Real meaning and purpose don't come from top down. If they do, we are secondary. We are slaves or servants or members of a military looking for orders from up there, and you don't have the freedom. But real purpose is bottom up. It, to me, it's extremely liberating to think there's no marching orders, that there's no purpose of life, but there's purpose in life. And so we can solve real world problems without the distraction of, of religion. Find a problem to solve and start working on it. Whatever that problem is, maybe you have a sibling who died of some horrible rare disease, start working on that. Maybe it's hunger, maybe it's inequality, maybe it's women's rights, maybe it's gay rights. Whatever that problem is, find a problem and dedicate yourself to solving that problem then life can be and will be very meaningful. And that's much more self-actualizing than some promise of, uh, he of heaven or a threat of hell. After Dan came out of the atheist closet, a number of religious leaders secretly contacted him for help. He eventually concluded that there were so many closeted clergy who needed advice and guidance that he started an organization to support them. The Clergy Project was this kind of nice, accidental project that came together from three different sources. I met Richard Dawkins in Iceland uh, in 2005 or six, and he immediately said, you know, your story is, is pretty moving and there must be others trapped in the ministry. We need to help these people. Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, and his colleague, Linda Lascola, were working on a project which was later printed in evolutionary psychology about preachers who don't believe. We hear again from Dr. Daniel Dennett of Tufts University. When we published our first study, we expected a lot of church leaders, religious leaders, to condemn us for making a mountain out of a molehill or making the whole thing up. There was very little of that on the web. They all know, they all know it's true. There was hardly anybody who questioned the fact that this is a phenomenon. What nobody knows is how big it is. The clergy that we interviewed, that Linda interviewed, they really all think that they're the tip of the iceberg, but they don't dare ask their fellow clergy. They're like gays in the 50s without gaydar. They don't dare raise the issue with other clergy they know whom they suspect are just as much non-believers as they are. I get emails and phone calls from ministers who are still in the pulpit. They've read my book and they want to get out. So I gave them some names. They interviewed some of them and became part of their project. And the three of us thought, wouldn't it be great to have an organization? So in 2011, we started the Clergy Project to help ministers, priests, rabbis, nuns, paid professional religious people to transition out of the ministry into um, civilian life. And today, there are about a 750 members of that project, including about a quarter of whom are still in the pulpit, including some conservative pastors who no longer believe, but they're trapped and they're in the pulpit. They want to get out desperately. And they email us, they close their office door and they email us, you won't believe the crap I had to say during today's sermon, but I just need to find a way to get out of this. So it's pretty exciting. And some of them go into social work, some of them go into teaching philosophy, some of them go into nonprofit work. And some, you know, we all have to land on our feet in some way, but it's nice to have a community where 
we can compare notes. How did you tell your family? What happened to your marriage? What happened in your community? And uh, so there's some dramatic stories in there. We jokingly asked Dan about whether he needed to hide some clergy in the God's My Witness Protection Program. Actually, we require in the clergy project that those who are still active use pseudonyms. Even within the forum, only one or two of us know who the person actually is. And we tell them, don't give away too much. Some of them have had the keys thrown away to the church. One guy, uh, a monk, was thrown out of the monastery. He was not allowed to go get his clothes, his computer, his books, or anything. They said, you had no possessions. We interviewed him on our radio show from a, a homeless shelter, which he called Bugs and Thugs, because he, he had nowhere to live. And so it can be pretty dramatic what happens to you if you renounce your faith in the community in which you live. We've heard from Dan that changing one's fundamental beliefs can disrupt one's social ties and career. But are there other, perhaps biological, reasons why it might be difficult to unbelieve? Whether our beliefs are political or philosophical or religious, are they habit-forming? We interviewed Dr. Andrew Newberg, a neuroscientist at the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia, who studies the impact of religion on the brain. So we started to think about the different ways that we could look at our brain, at our psyche, uh, at our beliefs, and how they are intertwined with our religious and spiritual selves. So we did brain scans of people who did practices like prayer or speaking in tongues where they felt intimately connected to God, and we see changes in the brain that are associated with that kind of an experience. When we looked at the brain of people who uh, engaged spiritual practices like meditation and prayer as part of their spiritual tradition, we did find that there were differences in the way in which their brain worked. Uh, for example, one of the interesting findings that we have, and we're still trying to understand what it means, was in the activity levels in a very central structure called the thalamus. So the thalamus normally takes all of our sensory information and helps to integrate different processes in the brain. And what we found was, was that in those people who were particularly religious or spiritual and had done these practices for a long time, there was an asymmetry in the thalamus. We have a right and a left side. So one side was much more active than the other in those individuals. In kind of the average person who wasn't particularly religious, there was much more symmetry. They were more equal on both sides. We asked him if it's possible to get addicted to our beliefs. The more you think about anything, the more you focus on anything, the more that becomes your reality, the more that becomes your belief system. And that's why practices like meditation and prayer are very powerful. Because if you keep saying, you know, God is great or God is love or something like that, and you keep saying that over and over again, or just that God exists, then that becomes your way of thinking about the world and that becomes the way in which your neural connections form. It takes energy to break those connections. So even on a physiological level, it's hard to change a belief. And again, I think our brain becomes very anxious whenever it feels like its belief system is incorrect. So what, what cognitive neuroscience has taught me is that everything changes our brain. Every piece of information that comes into our brain is processed in the brain. And so we never really know if what we're thinking on the inside is accurate with what's out there on the outside. So we construct ideas, beliefs, renditions of what that world is, and we hope that they're right. And as long as we're surviving, we say, okay, you know, it, it almost doesn't matter if, the, uh, if our belief systems are accurate as long as they are adaptive and allow us to survive. Could it be that many of our beliefs are byproducts of repetition? Think about it. One nation, under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Does that sound familiar? How about this one? Oh, 
Well, that still brings a tear to my eye and a tingle to my spine every time I hear it. I've clearly been programmed at an emotional level to feel a sense of love for my country. We talked to Mark White from The Spin Doctors about this and asked him whether growing up surrounded by gospel music had an influence on his beliefs. Music is a universal thing. And what happens is that you can go into a trance. And it doesn't matter what religion, you could be, it could be voodoo. That's what voodoo does, voodoo music. Anything with a beat. So gospel music has a beat. So if you go into a black church and you see people dancing, it's no different than if you were to go to a voodoo gathering or whatever and see the same people running around doing the same thing. Or a mosh pit, a mosh pit, it's exactly the same thing. But there's like one bass line that goes doom, 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 boom, 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 right? And you, the faster you play that, the more crazy people get. There's a, there's a bass player, his name is Billy Sheen. I love this guy. And he plays with like his four fingers. And whenever I listen to his solo and whatever he does, I get like a rush. Like my blood pressure actually goes up. And I said to myself, why is that happening? It's because it's just the intensity of the notes. And you see that in the church. It's like, you know, all the, everybody's, if you, listen to, if you listen to black gospel music, there's so many notes. There's so many different changes. You never get a chance to, but the beat usually stays the same. So you're just like, you're in this trance. And so if you go on YouTube, just type in black gospel music, you'll see all, you know, I used to call them the black mamas. They would just be bum, 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 bum. They're just, they're in the thing, they'd fall out and pass out. We're not advocating that anyone change their religious views. Religious organizations help people in many ways. They offer many people a needed support structure, whether to help them stay sober or to grieve the death of a loved one or to navigate a difficult relationship. But for those people who are questioning their upbringings and religious studies and feel the undercurrents of change percolating through their quiet thoughts, let's allow them to explore their doubts without judging, without exiling. They may return, they may not, but they should be entitled to make up their own beliefs based on the facts as they see them. To deny them that right would be, well, let's call it a sin. And now, before we conclude, a little bit of wisdom from some highly respected philosophers. This is the Messiah, the chosen one! So we'd like to thank you for listening, and we'd like to thank our production team, Christina Sorge for producing the episode, along with assistant producers Georgia Cohen, Mike Scally, and Simone Jantz, editing by Ollie Riley-Smith, sound design and musical score by Scott McKay-Gibson, and all of our experts and guests who brought wisdom to this episode. 
We hope you enjoyed the podcast and got something out of it. If so, then please rate us favorably and come back for more. You can visit our website, mbelief.com, that's the letter M followed by the word belief with an F, dot com, for more information. Or find us wherever podcasts are available. I'm Joe Sorge. Thank you for listening. For life is quite absurd, and death's the final word. You must always face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your scene, give the audience a grin. Enjoy it, it's your last chance at the end. Sound always look up.